0: Welcome to the Dow of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art. For good measure, I'm Laura Hilliger.
1: And I'm Doug Belshaw. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded, so you can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com forward slash We Are Open.
0: Today, we are talking to John Atherton, the project organizer for Workers.coop. Uh, After spending 14 years working for Cooperatives UK membership, uh, he's now heading up a new initiative, which We Are Open Co-op is also involved with, and we thought we would get him on the podcast to talk about plans and how others can get involved. Welcome, John.
2: Welcome, and I'm glad
1: to be here. Excellent. So, you know what the first question is going to be. Our first question is always, what is your favorite book and why?
2: Um, I could have chose any number of trashy fantasy or sci-fi books, but I've gone for Uh.
1: uh,
2: Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky because it was probably one of the books I read that changed the way I thought, and so that's why I've kind of gone for that. Uh, It's all about uh, basically how you challenge power and and challenging power in very different ways than I thought about before I read it.
1: And did you read this at like a... Pivotal moment in your life? Or was it just one of those books where it doesn't matter when you read it? Like it's just so powerful?
2: Um, I read it very, very early on in my cooperative journey, so at least 15 years ago. Um, hmm. but yeah, no, I wasn't a teenager.
1: So why don't we dig into that then? So, like you've your current positions with kind of workers.coop and you've spent a long time with cooperatives UK. How do you come to to that juncture, how how what's your career history? What's led you here?
2: So similar to lots of other co-opy people, um, I didn't really know about co-ops until <laughs> until I did, uh, if that makes sense. So I my background was economics, business studies, wanted to do international development, went all the way through my academic life, not once ever coming across co-ops, and that's despite living in North Manchester literally right in wow. the town next door to Rochdale. So I didn't know anything about co-ops. I started out doing an internship at the Grammy Bank in Bangladesh, which was the first organisation to properly do microcredit. And it was there mm-hmm. I came across co-ops in the form of credit unions
1: and you know, consumer, consumer... Can we owned. just step back a moment? Yeah, you, you can't just casually say, I did an internship in a bank in Bangladesh without maybe just... Explaining how that came about. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,
2: so I, yeah, so I was did economics, geography, jog all that. I wanted, I to work. I wanted to work at Oxfam. I wanted to do international development. And right. so, when I right. was looking around to how to get into that whole world, I basically wrote. I basically wrote a letter to uh, the Government Bank in Bangladesh, and, and in that massively naive way, uh, young young people do said, hey, I've got an economics degree, I could help you out. And and then as soon as I got there, I realised I literally knew nothing about international development and economic regeneration compared to these people who obviously do it really, really well. And I think the guy won won a Nobel Prize for it. So that that puts me in my place. Um, But yeah, yeah, so that that, that was my first introduction, I suppose, to economic development and, and poverty alleviation. And that's where I came across co-ops. And (laughs) I remember thinking, wow, this is a great idea. Why don't we have co-ops in the UK? And, (laughs) and, yeah, no joke, this is how naive I was. Came back to the UK, did the research. It was like, oh, oh, we invented them in that town, literally just down the road in Rochdale. And That was really my introduction to co-ops. And so I I didn't end up getting a career in international development uh, because it's really hard. And so I ended up going into uh, basically doing local economic development you know, locally, social enterprise, charities, and, and a little bit of co-ops. And that's really where I started mm. pivoting from charity and charitable forms of economic development and, and all the rest of it to co-ops, because, you know, as, as we probably get onto co-ops, I believe, are a fundamentally better way of giving people power and control over their lives.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: Well, it sounds like you uh, wrote a really good introductory le- letter to this bank <laughs> that you went to. Um, d- do you want to talk a little bit about some of the differences that you see amongst co-ops? Like the differences because there's a lot of different kinds of co-ops now, and I think a lot of people they've heard of platform co-ops or worker co-ops or agri co-ops. And maybe you can just talk a little bit about the first kinds of co-ops that you got involved with. So that was in the financial industry and credit unions, and then how you kind of um, expanded your knowledge of the the cooperative landscape from there.
2: Yeah. So what I suppose, as I found out fairly quickly on my journeys, there weren't just the consumer co-ops, the traditional credit unions, and 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 retail, retail co-ops you see on the high street. They're the probably the most well known, or suppose the most global. Um, and I rapidly realized, although they are great and they have done great things, they worker ownership or or, or cooperatives where it's the producers who who own and, and control and benefit from the cooperatives are, I would say, even better. So, you know, credit unions and consumer co-ops are great. They do great things for people. But isn't it a shame that the people who work in those sorts of cooperatives are basically employees like in any other business? And, I, 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 and so I suppose that's, that's the big difference between co-ops. They're all cooperatives are owned and controlled and for member benefit. That's what they, you know, they're all democratic organisations. They've all got social purpose. They all have those seven uh, principles the difference is who owns them and who benefits and mm. and so yeah i you know again, it's just personal preference I, I think the workers should own it and should benefit the most you know obviously my uh, colleagues who are very heavily involved in credit unions or consumer co-ops would disagree and say no 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 it's the customer that that should should be the should be in charge and so that really that's the difference is uh, who owns the co-op
1: Mm-hmm. And is it, is it usually always a matter of scale? Are worker co-ops usually always smaller than other types of co-ops?
2: Uh, no. Um, so Mondragon, which is uh, the largest worker co-op in the world, uh, in the Basque Country, is, you know, I think it's the seventh largest corporate group in Spain. So that, that Me. means it's pretty massive. Um, it you know has oh, I can't remember, you know, tens of thousands of employees. And so you can have worker co-ops that operate at scale, as you can have consumer co-ops that operate at scale. Um, it I we could get into a very long conversation around about you know ecosystems for developing worker co-ops and how yeah. they got it, it something worked in the Basque country in Spain that clearly hasn't worked in the UK. But yet no, there's there's nothing to stop you having super large. Uh, worker co-ops it's just that's just mm. not the way the uk movement
1: went
0: okay do you want to talk a little bit about um what so you're currently you're working with workers co-op which spun out of cooperatives uk um and maybe you want to talk a little bit about why the the spin happened what is this called the What is it called when something spins out? There's a word for this,
1: in German or in English?
0: Yes, in German. That's what I'm looking for.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm not sure that German word is going to be so useful for this conversation, but um, yeah. So it it planted. Is that the word in English? Planted. No, maybe not. Yeah, spun out is a bit of
0: this i it's fine i'll find it you know 20 minutes from now and then i'll just shout it into the microphone and everybody will be very entertained but w- why should you trained. maybe you could tell us a little bit about why workers.coop spun out from yeah. cooperatives uk okay.
2: so the the slight back history cuz uh, I, I love my history is uh, t- back in the 1970s there work there was that was when really worker co-ops in their modern form, kind of came out. Um, there was a, the first organisation that tried to do it was an organisation called Scott Barter, which was a manufacturing organisation, and it was playing, a bit like nowadays, people are messing around and playing with structures and ways of working. And back in the 70s, because of the economic crisis and, uh, and all the rest of it, um, people were playing with new ways of, of, of running businesses. And so the, the modern form of a worker co-op came out of that 1970s. As always happens with this sort of thing, they formed their own federation called the Industrial Common Ownership Movement, because their their focus was this concept of the Commonwealth and owning owning things in common, rather than as individuals. Um, And they had their own organisation, and it was massively successful for the time. I think the number of worker co-ops grew uh, through the 70s and 80s up to around 1,500 businesses. And Then um, Tony Blair came along and basically uh, he didn't, (laughs) uh, New Labour were not interested in co-ops. They saw co-ops as old labour and so they basically uh, crushed all the uh, infrastructure and funding. Um, But then I would say that, wouldn't I? Uh, And so the the organisation struggled uh, and eventually merged with the Consumer Co-op Federation to form Co-ops UK. And so they used... in, in short, there used to be one. There used to be a worker co-op federation. It merged to form an overall you know, um, organisation for all co-ops and was massively successful, and that was fine for you know 20 years, 20, 25 years, and really it was a f- couple of years ago now where people started to say, ooh, wouldn't it be great if we had our own thing? And I think part of that was because of an organisation called Co-Tech so I know in the worker co-op tech sector, um, those tech businesses thought there was a better way of doing things and, and created co-tech specifically for, for tech co-ops. And I think a lot of the other worker co-ops saw that, saw what they were doing and thought, why can't we do that? Why can't we have an organisation that um, is, is specific to, to all worker co-ops? And really that's what germinated the idea Uh, And so essentially the worker co-op members of Co-Ops UK approached Co-Ops UK and said, you know, like lots of other parts of the cooperative economy, we would like to have a specialist federal body specifically for worker co-ops. And so working with Co-Ops UK, that's what we did. Um, And so it was created in uh, November last year and has essentially been going for what nine months now, I think. And so that's kind of where we're up to. And uh, how many
0: today. do you know how many um, members are there in workers'
2: co op today? Uh, so, to date, we are membership opened uh, in January and we're up to, I think, 47 last time I checked worker co ops. Mm-hmm. Um, that's out of uh, 400 worker co ops in the whole of the UK, mm-hmm. um, which is not getting 10% within the first three, four months. That's good. It's not bad mm-hmm. going. Um, and Crucially, most of the really large worker co-ops, they're the ones we targeted. So a lot of the really big ones have joined and and really, as as with lots of things, it's the massive long tail of really small co-ops that we now have to target and, and get on board. Like ours, yes.
1: yes. Um <laughs> so that's interesting, isn't it? Because I I didn't know that history, that there used to be two separate movements which then joined together because of pragmatic reasons and then it makes sense to separate them again and and what i find interesting about that is the historical angle which you've kind of explained when people don't know the history of the movement then they don't know what's possible how large things were before um what we can learn from uh the history of other countries what we can learn from the present time in other countries and i think you're going to talk about some of that later on but um yeah otherwise you just take you know when i say i'm part of a, a co-op to other people the two touch points are obviously for the people in the uk the co-op food store and the co-op bank and the co-op bank isn't even a co-op is it so it's it's a very bizarre situation um and yeah we do need kind of a an industry body uh collective a, a foundation to to be the voice and to to kind of grow the movement a little bit
0: do you find that um, co-op washing is a thing, actually, in the UK? You just mentioned that co-op bank isn't actually a co-op, and there's a lot of, like, you know, I have a background in open source. There's a lot of what we call open washing. Open AI is the uh, <laughs> most modern example of open washing. Do you find that there's a lot of co-op washing? Is that even a term? now, Yeah. So the, the,
2: yeah, the, the, so the co-op bank example is a i'd say more of an aberration than a than a, than a pattern um so it okay. it used to be so in the UK you can't actually set up a bank as a co-op legally they have to be plcs so it technically mm. was a subsidiary of the largest consumer co-op um so it it used to be part of a co-op and essentially uh, due to one of the financial crises we went through i think it was 2008 uh basically when lots of other banks got um, bailed out by the government, uh, the cooperative bank wasn't. And so essentially the co-op group had to divest itself and uh, it was taken over by, uh, by basically venture capitalists. So that was its journey from being a co-op to a non-co-op, uh, which was massively unfortunate. And uh, there's ever since been a challenge around the branding and the identity. Um, normally... Most people that we don't get a lot of people pretending they're co ops that are not co ops, partly because cooperative and being a cooperative isn't necessarily a fashionable thing. Uh, there aren't oh, any tax benefits, there aren't any tax benefits, there aren't any, um, again, particularly through the 90s into the noughties, social end, you know, in that sort of alternative world of business social enterprise was the fashionable thing now most co-ops are social enterprises and lots of co-ops did brand themselves and 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 use that identity as a social enterprise um now the trend is this thing called community business so there's loads of money and interest in the concept of community wealth building and community businesses and so again lots of cooperatives may frame themselves as as part of that 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 movement underlying thing is is they are cooperatives I, I think it's something a little bit more particular to worker co-ops where they people who consciously create their businesses as worker co-ops are more proud of or use that identity more in their their branding as opposed to some of the other industries so so long long response but not many people would say they are a co-op if unless they truly mean it and they truly are um, it will be interesting to see how that continues as fashions and trends change
1: well we've definitely come across an example in the last year where an organization which was being set up kind of claimed it was a co-op but definitely leaned heavily on cooperative language and we kind of you know challenged them in a a friendly way and say if you're a co-op be a co-op if you're not then maybe Change to the language, and I wonder if it is different in in different sectors. Like if if you know, like we do actually get people telling us that they want to work with us because we're we're a co op, you know, and 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 maybe it's different in different sectors. And but in the tech sector, it might be that because you've got venture capital, because venture capitalism is almost a norm. Because um, you know, stripping user data, like all of the abuses of big tech over the years, maybe. Maybe there's particular sectors which are ripe for pushback by cooperatives. Maybe that's it. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I didn't mention before, but cooperative is a, um, a sensitive term, so you can't mm-hmm. register a company as a cooperative without a, without being a cooperative. And Coops UK mm-hmm. kind of acts as the guardian of, of of that. So, it. So one of the jobs I had at Coops UK was sending nasty letters to organisations saying. I <laughs> don't think you're a co-op and if you if you are passing off as a cooperative we may well have to take you to court uh, that usually changed people's uh, uh branding. <laughs> but it didn't happen that often because the truth was well, there's not many people passed no. off as a co-op if they they weren't and i and I do agree with you i think again we we see it particularly more in the um agency work tech work though where where all the skill and value in the business is knowledge-based or creative-based and um, mm. and the relationship is through an account manager and, and is a personal relationship so those sorts of sectors where you can say I am your account manager or I am your developer or or your creative lead and I own this business I, I get the sense you know again it's all subjective that as you say people quite like that they quite like the fact that the the um, the person they're talking to is an owner in that business they're not just a freelancer they're not just uh, massively exploited employee uh, with a, a a founder creaming off all the profits. and yeah. we find that that's a reason uh, to to trade with uh, worker ops You mentioned so, no, uh, on, I was Rose, just
0: sorry. gonna I was just gonna ask you, you mentioned a few minutes ago um, that that cooperatives were in in their history, in the history of uh, cooperation, cooperatives. Um, people were forming around um, collective ownership of what you mentioned as the commons. Um, And I'm thinking that what you meant was like common land, common areas. And I was wondering if you might um, talk a little bit about the digital commons and cooperatives and whether or not you're seeing in this landscape um, cooperatives sort of pop up to try to to, to shepherd the ownership around some of the digital commons that we have, or if it's still pretty heavily nonprofit run, um, the commons that we understand as digital commons.
2: Yeah, so the original common ownership movement was very much about we, when we're building businesses and building wealth, we're not building wealth just for ourselves and our own individual benefit, we're building a commonwealth of, of wealth for the future generations and the future employees and so there was a very big movement that that we're not going to sell this business if we make a lot of money we're going to be stewards so that you know future people can can benefit from this this source of work so that's where it it, it came from and and yeah as you kind of say it kind of they're very parallel and and aligned values so there are lots of uh, tech co-ops that are very interested in open source and very interested in the commons and and the digital commons because they're very similar values and similar ways of thinking, um, yeah. In a similar vein, lots of worker co-ops operate in agile, flat, non-hierarchical. You know, high. What would you, what would you call it? Uh, high challenge, high feedback, open and honest communication. Mm. environments and so again there's there's a lot of crossover with those sorts of ways of working in worker co-ops and the sorts of things people in you know say modern tech businesses are kind of used to or expect and and, and hopefully demand sorts of workers in those sorts of business should demand those sorts of ecosystems and structures for how they work because they're better you know i think i'm sure all three of us believe those sorts of work environments are better than very hierarchical very uh, controlled work environments, and so yeah, they, there are obvious overlaps between cooperative values and uh, and, and methodologies, and yeah, those sorts of um, values and methodologies. Mm.
1: And you mentioned um, so for for those who don't know, because we've just been doing some work around this and reading long reports and and all that kind of stuff um, from the ICA, the International Cooperative Association. So, my understanding is that coops u k is the national body for the u k and then there's ones in every other country in the world is it or how does it work
2: yeah, this this would really benefit from a, a very nifty diagram and an illustration but maybe the way i try and explain it is it's a bit like the u n so the i c a is like the u n for co ops and so it's the it's the global body that tries to bring together these very disparate sectors and countries and approaches and legal forms and, um, and all lots of different countries have lots of different co-op movements at lots of different levels of development. And so the, the ICA essentially tries to bring all those different uh, places together and build a movement. You yeah, know, this is a global, a global movement and, um, and and that's its role so yes not i i wouldn't i couldn't tell you if there is a country that doesn't have a court movement there must be but the vast majority of uh, countries do have a court movement some um, like the uh, the uk obviously were you could say invented it um but like like football uh, some countries are much much better at it than we are despite the fact we invented it and so yeah places like france spain italy uh, particularly, uh, their co-op economies are massive in comparison to to the UK's. Uh, India, China, etc., also have huge uh, cooperative economies that are are way bigger than ours. Just as a little bit of context, um, in the UK, the total number of members of co-ops is about eleven to twelve million people. Uh, in India, there is one co-op out of the many hundreds of however many's. Uh, that has 50 million members in it just on its own. So they have one co-op, that's what, three three or four times the size of the entirety of the members involved in the UK co-op movement, Uh, and that just gives you a sense of the scale elsewhere.
0: Um, Given given the scale of the cooperative economy and the co-op movement globally, given that scale... Why do I continue to feel like this is like a, a little niche industry? Why, why, is it, why is it so hard? for? Why do we so often meet people who are like, what? Co-op? What are you talking? Huh? Like, what, what's the deal there? Can you, can you help me understand why, why I feel that way? Or am I just like massively misinformed and um, it's not niche at all? It doesn't feel mainstream is my point
2: yeah so in the in the us and the uk it's absolutely not not mainstream um, because we went down a very different economic development path um, so yeah so, so for example i don't i couldn't give you the whole figures it's worth people googling if they're interested but there's about 7000 co-ops in the uk uh, there's about 40000 in in italy um, for example mm. you know so they're just a different level of scale um, in the uk we would really stretch to say we are like 0.5% of gdp you know whereas in uh, lots of countries you're talking 1 2 3 up to 5 6% of gdp um and so it it's more that you know the anglo-saxon way of doing business didn't go down this line uh you know so again similar in the states as the uk the the legal structures uh, the tax uh ecosystem the development funds the you know government uh, infrastructure just isn't there for co-ops so there's there's no there's not as many co-ops whereas in some countries like Nepal for example co-ops and co-ops are written into the constitution of the country and that's how mm-hmm. important it is to to uh, the Nepalese and you know that's just one example um, so then yeah there's about 3 million ish co-ops worldwide uh, with about a billion members worldwide, and so mm-hmm. yeah, in some countries, you know, it is much much greater than it is in the UK. So yeah, it, basically, it's because we're just capitalists in, in the UK. That's you know, and have that history uh, and don't want really so
0: that. It sounds like it's like it's sort of a, a Western understanding of co-ops because I live in Germany and there is a business form for cooperatives, but it's not that common. Like they, they're it's not a. I would have to look up what the percentages are, but if you are organizing a business in Germany, you have to talk to the very special experts to get to the point where you're actually going to form a co-op, even though it is a legalized form. Like people just don't, you know, it's just well, not it, a common.
1: It's like when we set up our co-op, so John Bevan and I talked to Sean Whelans and he was like, Well, there's about 80 different ways you can set up a co-op. There's no actual co-op form. Um, you know, yada yada yada. Whereas, you know, as I i'm learning and explain to other people um as john as john Atherton said in, in lots of countries and as you can find in germany there's there's places where you can press a button to a co-op which is an enabler i guess um mm. of the cooperative movement in a way that not being able to press that button isn't
2: uh, i yeah germany's a really good example um, where So in the UK, there isn't really any specific legislation for worker co-ops. So you can pretty much do it however you like. Um, there are some countries like, like I say, Italy, Spain, France, where there's very specific legal structures for worker co-ops with very specific tax exemptions and, and development funds at a, a, a national level to support the growth of them and, and, and that sort of thing. Whereas Germany, you've got the opposite problem where the legal structure for co-ops in Germany... Basically, makes it impossible to set them up as worker co-ops. So that's the reason why there is not many in Germany because uh, the, okay. the history is, uh, and again, there is a whole other conversation about the history of uh, the Eastern Bloc and, and that sort of thing in, in relation to co-ops. But in Germany, basically, the legal structures make it really hard to set up worker co-ops, and so most worker co-ops in, uh, as we would see them in the UK, do not use the cooperative legal structures in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, it is a good example of there's
1: not many um wow so that was um a detailed conversation and sorry no no and zooming into uh, that was fascinating for me like to go into that level of detail and for people who have listened to this podcast and have heard us talk about carbs before that level of knowledge about why different areas are, uh, are different from others just as a segue into kind of organizing and collective action and stuff um you put in the notes about emilio romagna um, and just how different that is, you know, as a particular region of Italy. Um, and just maybe you could explain about how, you know, why they're different, um, the GDP, all that kind of stuff. And maybe we can use that as a segue into, well, is that just a quirk of history? Or can you actually organize around specific things to get that level of of impact?
2: Yes, that I was thinking of that in the context of where we want to be, and so obviously we've created this this new federation. Um, there are four hundred worker co-ops in the UK, uh, which is not not a lot, you know, to be to be uh, 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 if you about it. Um, and so the goal of the federation, the worker co op federation, is to grow uh, a lot more worker co-ops both in quantity, quality and scale. So that, that's our ultimate goal is, yes, we've got 400, but you know we want 10 times that, 100 times that in, in, in scale. And so I looked to places like Emilia Romagna in Italy uh, as, as inspiration. And so uh, where do we want to be? Well, in, in Emilia Romagna, 30% of the GDP in that region is cooperatively owned. And so so they basically have 30% of the economy. And so what's my ambition? Well, we're never going to turn the entirety of the UK economy into uh, cooperative ownership. But 30%, that that would be a nice ambition to get to eventually. Um, Mm. And so it is possible elsewhere. It does happen. Uh, And so I suppose why should we not think big in the UK?
1: Uh, That's that link
2: in, really. So yeah, just... If you so, I suppose a bit more detailed, how did they do that? So, they have really strong infrastructure organisations. So, to your point, if someone wanted to set up a co op, it's dead. It, well, setting up a business isn't easy, but <laughs> setting up a business with advisors, support, development funds, uh, lots of other critical mass of similar businesses nearby, and all of that ecosystem makes it slightly easier than if you are. Uh, you know, alone. And so so some of this is about having the ecosystem to support worker co development. And then by the nature of having a really good ecosystem, then people want to do it because it is easier. It is more well-known. They can see success and they want to follow success. And so that's how it's been successful in in Emilia Magno and in, in, in Italy more generally, because both the government have supported it uh, there's been some really good strong infrastructure organizations um, and that critical mass means that more people do it who wouldn't wouldn't otherwise even consider it uh, and mm. in a way we have we're starting from a very very low uh, base in the UK
1: yeah some interesting things in that article about um cooperative crowdfunding and capitalization um, and about uh, it says uh, undistributed profits that were set aside in indivisible reserves would no longer be subject to corporate tax. And again, without getting into (laughs) too much nitty gritty, although, hey, it's our podcast, we can do what we want. Um, It's interesting to talk to people. And as I say to Laura, I often talk to, you know, parents on the side of football pitches, watching my kids play football and stuff. And when inevitably gets around to it, and what do you do? um, Once they get beyond the the first few questions and you're getting into like, so co-ops, how are they different? The indivisibility of of profit surplus, whatever you want to call it, is fascinating to them. The fact that it's not just a big boss sitting on top of a pyramid, extracting all the wealth, like you said before, like blows people's minds. Um, And it sounds like it was important in this uh, particular Italian region as well.
2: Yeah. So, um, I suppose just to give a, a, a pr- some practical things they do, they, they lobbied the government to change the law. So if you are made unemployed, you can roll up your unemployment benefit with loads of other people and use that rolled up unemployment benefit to set up a new business together. Great. That's yeah. a great way to get some capital into your business. And yeah, they have a, a, a another bit of law that says, what well, I think it was 1% of... Corporate tax, you, you know, so if you're paying corporation tax, 1% of it is top sliced away, and rather than going to the tax man, it goes into a development fund for co op development. So it means they're not getting any better tax treatment than, than private sector businesses, but it does mean, you know, a huge amount of over the whole country of uh, cash is going into specific development funds to specifically support co ops. And so they're just some really practical things. so when people say, well why aren't there more uh, worker cops in the UK it's quite easy. We don't have very good laws we don't have any government development support so it's no wonder it's a surprise we've got as many as we've got to some extent. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah and it's, it's funny, isn't it? like this morning you read the news um, so we're recording this in in what the middle of, of May um, another um, rail franchise has gone, um has been renationalized because you know the the private the private industry hasn't hasn't worked and a, a lot of what we consider to be simple market forces so the oil and gas industry supported by i think it was worked out this week a trillion dollars of government subsidies so it, it's not like businesses exist outside of a vacuum of government investment and encouragement and policy like and, and so i wondered to what extent i know you've talked about this in conversations that we've been in elsewhere but to what extent it's early days for workers.org but to what extent there's a political pressure policy arm of all this
2: yeah i, I think when i'm thinking about how we build our federation I, I i think we have to build it with our people in mind so the whole the whole concept of what we're trying to do is to Empower the people already within worker co ops to be better worker cooperators, to run more effective worker co ops that are more successful, that make more profit, that show the success, but equally allow those worker co ops to grow and succeed and give back to the movement. And by starting there, then you can propagate out. And so once we have more success stories, more competent and successful worker cooperators and worker co ops, then then we, I believe and, I, and the other kind of founders believe that is how we get change and we and you grow and succeed by showing success because um, people will go, wow, we are open. They're a fantastic business. Why are they fantastic? Oh, they're fantastic because, or well, in part due to the fact that their workers are empowered and blah, blah, blah. Um, I want to be like that too. And so our kind of idea is, is that classic grassroots momentum building um, not based on shallow, a shallow basis, based on the fact that these are really, really well-run, well-organised businesses really making a difference to the people within them. And so I would say once we get that right, and that could take a very long time, that's when you start to then think, well, how are we going to play into the kind of zeitgeist at the moment? And so, yeah, I think where you're going with it, I suppose, is we know there's lots of exploited workers we know, uh, particularly in the tech sector and creative sector, there is lots of gig economy jobs and freelancer jobs, and the sorts of people doing those sorts of roles are absolutely ripe for conversion, really, for want of a better term, into worker cooperators. and and that and you know I believe that sort of approach to business will only get worse. I think we're only going to be even more leaning into where larger businesses are outsourcing to freelancers and gig economy workers. And so I don't think that trend is going away. I think at the moment, and you alluded to this before, at the moment, someone who's really annoyed with their boss or feeling really exploited as a freelancer or gig economy worker, at the moment, we know there are potentially millions of people like that in the UK, but at the moment, there's no route to get that person from, you know, I'm really annoyed to there is an alternative. And I think that's where the Federation needs to work out how to make that gap and and, and fix that gap and say, there is an alternative. It's called worker cooperation. Come join us.
0: Okay. I'm in, I'm convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have any, you know, for, for people who are feeling that frustration, um, and, you know, that that they're exploited. Do you have any, like, first step tips uh, on getting involved in the co-op movement? Something that, you know, the freelancer who happens to be working uh, right now, listening to this podcast and saying, I am so annoyed with my boss. What what do they do first?
2: What do they do first? Um, I suppose they need to think about, like, any business, potential business, is, uh what do you do what what value have you got can can you convert your your labor into a valuable business into a business idea uh, can you do it with the colleagues you already work with or are there other people uh nearby the industry that you get on with you share a share values with and that that spark because worker co-ops are all about personal relationships mm-hmm. and you know building that that, that team of people that you you align with or for, for whatever reason so that's absolutely the start you know it's uh, unfortunately you can't set up a worker co-op as an individual that's uh, pretty pretty hard um you have to be have to be a, a group once you've got that um what i would say is you could get in touch with our federation workers.co-op, and uh, we're about to launch whether we have launched by the time the uh podcast goes out but we are about to launch something called co-op conversations which is essentially an opportunity for anybody who's thinking of setting up a worker co-op to have a conversation about it with a, an existing person from a worker co-op who's kind of been there and done that. And really that, that conversation could be ex- exactly that that starter. You know, what do I do first? Where do I go? Uh, what even is a worker co-op? Uh, and so we're hoping to launch that soon because, yeah, we recognise it can be scary and really that first conversation just needs to be encouraging and say, you can do this. I did it, sort of thing. So yeah, yeah obviously check out yeah. our website.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's one of the you know one of the uh, principles that cooperatives follow, dear listener, um, is this idea that it's part of our responsibility to educate other people about cooperatives, about the cooperative movement, and um, cooperative conversations coming soon uh, is a good opportunity to get involved with people who have been members of co-ops, who are thinking around how do we push the movement further, how do we get more people involved, and um, how do we show solidarity to workers' rights.
1: Okay, so um, we could talk about co-ops all day, I think. But um, We have a whole
0: season about them. so <laughs>
1: <laughs> We do. Um, are we good to get you back on, actually, John, maybe in like six months or a year's time to see see where we're at? You know, once all these things that we're working on have, have been launched, what's a bit more buzz once has been the first events, that kind of stuff. Because it's easy to forget how early in the journey all of this is, really. Um, but where can, if people want to find out more about you, want to connect with you, we've already talked about workers.coop, which people can type into their favorite browser and find out more about that. But if people want to find out more about you and your journey, maybe ask your specific advice as a co-op advisor, how can people connect with you?
2: Uh probably best on LinkedIn, I suppose, if you can put uh, if you have notes for the, the podcast. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Yep. Yep.
2: Um yeah, or my email address is John at workers dot coop So by all means get in touch.
1: Awesome. Okay, is there anything else that we haven't touched upon in uh, this kind of introductory conversation with you, introducing uh, uh, you two to the audience that we've got? Um, Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention before we finish?
2: Probably, but nothing comes to mind. I think that was uh, (laughs) a very varied conversation about co-ops.
1: Yeah, we got into got into the weeds in places. Uh, we talked about things where, you know, where people if they haven't come across before, we didn't really talk very much about your your book recommendation, Rules for Radicals. But like all the other books that are recommended by guests on this podcast, um, Laura curates this on a wonderful website, which is a bit like Goodreads, called Literal Club. Um, and so there's a book club on there, which people can find out more about that, and maybe and maybe have a read. So that would be great. But John, thank you very much for your time, and uh, keep on fighting the good fight. Thank
0: you very much. Thanks a lot.